You know, uh, as I was praying this afternoon and just praying over the, what the Lord wanted to do this evening, I was reminded of uh, the book of Mark. And uh, when Jesus, as Mark reports it, was uh, doing the parable of the seeds, you remember? And some of them fell on thorny ground and some of them fell, but some of them fell on good ground. But then the ones that fell on good ground, some of those seeds produced 30 times what was sown. And some produced 60 times what was sown. And some produced 100 times what was sown. So my prayer this afternoon was, Lord, speak your word and then produce 100 times what was sown. Um, and so as we just begin to uh, look back at, at the word of God, would you just raise your hand if you were not here this morning? I just kind of want to get a view. Okay, there are a lot of you. Okay, quick overview. <laughs> so... We're, we began to talk about the concept of altered, and I, I reassured everyone that I know that you have to spell it wrong to get it right. <laughs> that, that what we're going to talk about is how to, how, how to take our flesh and put it on the altar. And so, and the Lord has been building this into me for decades and decades. And so uh, there came a day when he gave me a word for it. Uh, take the noun altar which is not a passive place, because you're going to choose what to do when you come to that altar. So let's, he says, let's take the noun altar and turn it into a verb in your life. When you reach one of those moments that we're going to talk about here that I call a crucifixion moment, then alter your flesh. And then you can live in an altered state. You can live with, with your flesh, not the one in charge. So very quickly, this morning, we took quite a bit of time to just really drill down and understand what flesh is. Uh, in, it, depending on what translation you use, you might, run across the, you might run across the phrase carnal man or old man or old nature or human nature. All of those are words for what we're going to call flesh. And we, uh, before you are born again, uh, before you're born again, you're nothing but flesh. And flesh is where, where you are operating in your life, in, the, in your own power, in the power of your own personality, rather than in the power of the spirit. The, your flesh is where you are still taking charge. Okay, so before Jesus comes to indwell you by his spirit, you don't have any choice but flesh. That's just all you are. But once Jesus comes and makes his home in you, he begins to do a transformation from the inside out. And, and there are some things about our flesh that the minute Jesus takes up residence, they are just gone. But most things aren't. Our, our human nature still has, ha, has pockets of flesh in it. And, and when Jesus comes to take up residence, he begins to clean those out. Because, he, I tried to emphasize this this morning, not because you don't suit him, not because he doesn't love you 100% all he's ever going to love you, just how you are, but because he loves you so much that he wants you free. And our flesh is what holds us back. When we keep still trying to be in charge, it, keeps, it holds us back from all that God has for us. So we, we talked this morning about the fact that your flesh has a pattern to it. 
And uh, once you start recognizing what that pattern is, like uh, maybe, maybe you uh, often find yourself being on the defensive. Maybe you often find yourself feeling inadequate. Whatever, you, what, whatever is not from the spirit is from the flesh. Okay, so before the Holy Spirit would start to work this into your life, you might have said, well, that's just who I am. That's just my personality. Or, or you might have said, well, who wouldn't act that way? But once you begin to realize that it's flesh and it's not who you are anymore, then it's going to change the way you define and deal in the moment. And, uh, and so flesh wants to... Your flesh wants to own, your flesh wants to manage, your flesh wants to be in charge, your flesh wants to make everything turn out like your flesh thinks it should. Your, your flesh does not like to let go of anything. Uh, and so as we start to, that's a very quick overview of what we talked about this morning, but here, here's where we go from here. We're going to talk a little bit more about flesh to be sure that we under, begin to understand. And, and we talked about this morning... Jesus, here's what Jesus said about flesh. It profits nothing. It doesn't get you anywhere. It just, you're just spinning your wheels when you're acting in your flesh. It just doesn't move anything forward. It's not productive. And, uh, and we talked about that when, G, when the, these, we all have behaviors. Maybe they're things we do. Maybe they're ways that we, thought patterns that we have or emotions that we have that we have recognized as not being productive in our lives. And we have decided time and time again that we will no longer ever do that. And then the next thing we do is that. Because what we tend to do is get ourselves all focused on the behavior and try to, with all the willpower we can muster, try our hardest to change the behavior, but the behavior has a root. And the root is called flesh. And God is dealing with the root. And he has a particular strategy that he uses. And that strategy goes like this. Your, your patterns of flesh may not look anything like my patterns of flesh, but God engineers and allows in your life the very personality types and relationship situations and events that will engage your flesh because then you'll know it's there. It, when he exposes flesh and when you begin to recognize it as, oh, that's just my flesh in action, then you, you've come to a moment of choice, a crucifixion moment, where you're going to decide, am I going to act in that flesh one more time, or am I going to alter it and let the spirit take over? And, and uh, the way that flesh goes down, the way that flesh dies, is a crucifixion death. There's no other way. You can't dress it up. You can't teach it to behave. It has to die a crucifixion death. The scripture tells us over and over again that our old man, our flesh, our old nature has to die the death of a crucifixion, but not your crucifixion, Jesus' crucifixion. And the, the book of Ephesians tells, it, tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, your old man died with him. But what you and I do is we put it on automatic life support. And so here's what we're going to understand. When you come to a crucifixion moment, 
Okay, you come to an event in your life or a situation in your life that has engaged your flesh, where in the past you had said, that's just my personality, or you had said anybody would think that. Now, now the Holy Spirit has begun to say to you, that's just flesh. It's just dead weight, and you don't have to drag it around. And, and these crucifixion moments happen in the small moments of life, not in the big dramas. God wants to deal with your flesh in the small moments so that when the big moments come, you can walk into those in an altered state with your flesh not the boss. So let's think a little bit further about the nature of flesh. And, and here's where I think that flesh began. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden, and uh, let's go back to that moment we call the fall. And uh, now, up until this moment, the, the, the scripture tells us that God has put Adam and Eve, put the man and the woman in the garden, and he's filled the garden with trees that are good for food and a delight to the eyes. Now, keep that phrase in mind, because it's going to show up again. And, uh, and, and, they are, and, and they are absolutely free to eat from any tree in that garden. The entire earth is theirs to do with as it pleases them, except just the one thing. Just don't eat of the one tree. So there's only one thing that a person could do that would qualify as sin. And everything else is free to him. Okay? And, and so, of course, the enemy comes uh, to the female. And, uh, it, and you can tell by their conversation that this is not the first time she has seen the tree. Because he goes, you know that tree, the one God told you not to eat of? And she says, oh, sure, that one right there. She had seen the tree probably every day of her life, but she had never desired the tree. And so the enemy begins to suggest to her, you know, I'm not sure that's what God really meant. You know, surely he doesn't want to keep you. He says, because if you eat from that tree, you're going to be like God knowing good and evil, and surely God doesn't want to keep you from that. Okay, now has she sinned yet? She has not done a behavior that's a sin, has she? But right there, flesh flowered. If there's no flesh, there's no sin that will grow from it. Right there, because here's what, here is the very core and nature of flesh. Flesh wants to be its own God. Flesh wants to be its own source. So here's what the scripture says. The very minute that she saw, see now she'd seen the tree before, but now she saw it differently. And the Hebrew language says like instantly, the minute she saw it this way. As soon as she saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and to be desired to make one wise. You see, he takes her perfectly legitimate needs and desires for which God has already provided. And then he said, and, and the one thing that, that they get directly from walking with God is their wisdom. And so all of a sudden she said, ooh, I could have my own wisdom. Ooh, I wouldn't have to depend on God. I could be in charge of my wisdom. As soon as she saw that, flesh had flowered and sin followed. That is always the nature of flesh. The nature of flesh is that it is always trying to make us our own God, our own source, so that we don't have to depend on God for anything. 
And, and so as you begin to recognize how your flesh works, your flesh is always trying to get things worked out how you want them to be worked out. This morning I was sharing my own journey of, of uh, starting out my marriage with a very strong strain of what I call defensive flesh where I just, I, I, understood, I understood an insult in nearly everything you could say and don't even try to correct me or give me any constructive criticism because I would understand that to be offensive to me. And, uh, and so you think about that and you go, now how is that trying to be your own source? It would, it would drive me to argue with anybody who tried to have any kind of an impact on my life to convince them to think about me how I wanted them to think about me. And it never worked out. Uh, and it was a constant, oh, I had to work so hard at that all the time. But when you start to, when you start to identify what your flesh patterns are, and then you start to say, now what is it about that response I have that where I'm trying to do what only God can do for me, and where I'm trying to keep, stay in control of the outcome, and instead of just leaving it up to God. That's how flesh works. And flesh is a harsh taskmaster. You will find no rest when you are being driven by flesh. Because flesh, you can, you can never finish the job. This morning I said, I call it flim-flam flesh because flesh is making all kinds of promises it will never keep. If you just make that last argument, if you just buy that one more thing, if you, whatever your flesh does, you just, you feel like this time, this time when I do that, it's going to take care of everything. But it's flim-flam flesh and it is never going to move you forward. And so God, in his great love, is, is creating in your life opportunities for you to come face to face with your ugly flesh and go, oh, hello flesh, and decide at that moment to lay it down, which means don't do the thing your flesh insists you do. And, it's a, and it is a death of crucifixion. It is, it is always... Un unpleasant, and it is sometimes deeply painful. It depends on how deep a pattern God is working on. But it's, again, because he loves you. Now, let me describe flesh to you like this. Jesus makes this illustration about how his life flows through you like a vine's life flows through a branch. I just, I just can't get enough of just focusing on that and thinking about what that means, that Jesus is saying, the very life I have, the very life that flows in me, now it just flows right into you. So I'm going to put it into a more modern picture. I think it would be the same as if he, if he, if he said, I have transfused you with my life like a blood transfusion. And, and because the scripture says the, blood, the, the life is in the blood. And he put on earth a physical picture of that. Think about the, the blood that flows through your body. The, your life is in your blood. If you were perfectly healthy, but all your blood drained out, then you would be dead. Because your life is in your blood. Or think of it this way. Your blood flows through your body, and it has... 
and every single cell, cell in your body has direct access to blood supply. Any cell that doesn't have direct access to blood supply dies. And so here's what your blood does. When you eat food, the, the vitamins and the nutrients in that food are absorbed into your bloodstream, and your bloodstream delivers it to your cells. There's no alternate way to get nutrients to your cells. The blood is the only delivery system for life. It, when, when your body releases toxins, your blood washes them away, takes them to the organ through which they will be expelled. Without blood, there's no cleansing. Without blood flowing freely through you, my life is in the blood, he says. He's so, I think he's showing us this picture. So think about what happens if you tie a tourniquet around your arm. It cuts off the flow of blood. And now you can continue to use those muscles for a little while, but pretty soon the toxins that should have been washed away by the blood have been building up. And, and uh, muscle use becomes painful and then impossible. And then if nothing happens, if you don't do something about it, then the, the toxins that have built up are going to begin to seep into your bloodstream and get all through your body. So here's what flesh is. It's a tourniquet. It's a tourniquet that at that place, we're cutting off the full flow of his life. And when he begins to deal with a particular flesh pattern, it's because he is saying to us, I have life that could flow right there. And, and so it's almost like when, when you begin to recognize something as a flesh pattern that you had not defined that way before, because the Holy Spirit is moving in that area, and, and moving in that area of your life, it's a hint to you that the power of the life of Jesus Christ is, is ready to break forth right there. Now, the enemy would love to use that opportunity to cause shame and guilt and condemnation. And uh, those are his favorite tools. But, but Jesus wants you to see it as an encouragement. You cannot imagine the life that can flow right exactly there. Now, here's how the enemy works in your life once Jesus has become your Lord and Savior Jesus is not going to share his territory, and so he, the, the enemy can't really get in you and take possession because Jesus possesses you. But he's so brilliant at, from out here, manipulating your flesh. So when we come to that crucifixion moment that I've been saying that God engineers it, the enemy may have been the instigator of it because he wants to bring you, he wants to activate your flesh. So, so you'll become more of a slave to it. Every time we act in our flesh, we have become more its slave. But God wants to activate your flesh so you can alter it. He wants to activate your flesh so you can name it and see it for what it is and lay it down by your own choice and let resurrection take its place. Now, I'll repeat what I said this morning, especially when we're dealing with pattern patterns of flesh that are very deep and those have a lot of times come from generations when you start to understand flesh you can you can often look back and see gener it in generations 
And, uh, but, so, when the enemy, so when God wants to deal with, with flesh patterns that are deep and have deep roots, it, it is no easy deal. There's some, there's some pain to it. There's, some, uh, there, there's deciding over and over again. And your flesh, when you begin to say, I'm at an altering moment, I'm going to alter that flesh, I am not going to act in that flesh again, I'm going to let the Spirit take it from here, your flesh will not lie down and say, okay. It will fight for its life. It will make every argument to convince you to just let it have one more chance, just this one more time. And uh, so the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But crucifixion, the crucifixion of the flesh, crucifixion has only one possible outcome, and that's resurrection. No crucifixion, no resurrection. Jesus' crucifixion is not the story. His resurrection is the story. If the crucifixion were the end of the story, then he would have been a good man who died a noble death. The resurrection is the story. And as God begins to work these things into your life and, and, work, and work them through your life, understand that a call to crucifixion is a promise of resurrection. He has no other reason that he's going to uh, he has no other reason that he's going to call you into a crucifixion moment except so that he can produce a resurrection in you. And resurrection means that you are free from that flesh pattern that you've been dragging around as dead weight perhaps all your life. All your life you have had this particular tendency but you don't have to have it anymore. And God, is, and, and, and God is ready to set you free from that. And so resurrection is when the very same things that used to, used to always bring your flesh into action, bring it out of hiding, the very same things happen and it can't find any flesh to activate. Then you're free. Think of how life could be if you didn't have to feel offended. If you didn't have to feel angry, if you didn't have to feel upset. And, and we said this morning, the thing that happens out here that engages your flesh, that could well be wrong. But that's God's problem. Your problem is that it found flesh. So understand this. It is to your advantage that your flesh be exposed. If your flesh is not brought out into the open then it's free to just wreak havoc, havoc quietly. And God takes us through a process to reveal our flesh. Now, when Moses first, in, uh, first came down and, and read uh, uh, to the nation of Israel what God had commanded him, the people of Israel said, yeah, we will do that. Everything he says we will do. But then they couldn't carry it out. See, here our flesh has a lot of confidence in itself. And it's not going to give up that confidence in itself by someone just saying, your flesh cannot produce it. We'll go, oh, sure, I'll just try a little harder. I'll get another method. I'll go to, I'll go to this seminar over here. I'll read that book. There's a way. There's a way that my flesh can manage this. We have to have living proof 
that our flesh cannot produce what we want to produce in our lives. And so there's, other, there, there's the gap between the, the written law and the living law, because right in here we're being introduced to flesh. And we're beginning to understand that it is not going to get us where we think we want to go. That's what Paul was talking about he, in those passages in Romans when, when he says, uh, and I'm going to give you my interpretation of Paul. He says, so I used to be a man apart from the law. And when I was a man apart from the law, I thought I was free. I thought that what I was doing was exactly what I wanted to do. I do anything I want to do. And then he says, one day I met the law. And when I met the law, there was something in it that, that, that appealed to my heart. And I said, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. I'm going to follow the law. And he says, uh, so the law said, do not covet. So I say to myself, okay, I'm never going to covet. And then all I could do was covet, covet, covet. And he says, so the law really worked against me by, I'm going to put it into my words, by activating my flesh. And, uh, and, and so then Paul goes along talking about how hard he tried to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish with his life, and he, he could not do it religious man that he was. He couldn't get it done. And finally he reaches the, reaches the place of despair saying, who will rescue me from this body of death? He's, he says, I'm dragging around dead weight. And then he realizes, oh, the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Okay, it's an important part of our walk to be get free from the flesh that we learn by experience that flesh gets us nowhere. In order to get to the place where we are ready to surrender to the spirit, we have to be sick and tired of the failures of our flesh. You with me on that? And so, and, and so it's part of the process that God is using, that he's demonstrating to us in our real-time life how futile flesh is. And so there's a period of time that might feel discouraging and, and, and like, oh, I'm never going to get this. When you get there, then you're about ready to step into the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And now, one more, one more thought about flesh, and then we're going to look at resurrection. In the, in the material realm, things on the earth are classified one of two ways. They're living or non-living. They're organic or inorganic. And so and something that is non-living, a rock, say, cannot produce something that's living. A rock can't grow a plant. Life comes from life. It's called the, the law of biogenesis. In the spiritual realm, there is a law of spiritual biogenesis. Life can only come from life. And there's only one life, and his name is Jesus. It is Jesus who is producing the life that is flowing through you. It is Jesus who is producing the power. Now, in the spiritual realm, things are classified this way, flesh or spirit. Flesh can never produce spirit. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. So when we are acting, when we're using our flesh 
to manage a situation or to control an outcome or to, or to fix a relationship, when we're using our flesh, it won't produce anything but more flesh. It's flesh or it's spirit. It's never both. And so when we begin to look at even the tiny moments of our lives where the Holy Spirit acts in great power, there's, nothing, there's never any insignificant moment. Uh, he's acting in power in those moments in our lives that are identifying flesh. He is, uh, he is beginning to, to set us free, and we evaluate those by going, okay, this is not spirit, so I only have one other choice. This is flesh. And I said this morning, so let me repeat again, when we're talking about flesh, we're not necessarily talking about moments that you would say, oh, I'm so ashamed, I'm, that was so sinful and terrible. It's just, it was just flesh. And you don't have to drag around the dead weight of flesh anymore. And you come to that moment, and you, you come to that crucifixion moment, and you alter flesh. You just say, uh, I, I am not going to do what my flesh has always compelled me to do before. I'm not going to do it. I'm just rebelling against my flesh. When that, when that flesh comes in emotions and thoughts and reactions that you can't keep from coming, you keep from nurturing them. You keep from, uh, you keep from acting out of them. You recognize them for what they are. Uh, I recognize my flesh yelling at me in the background, but it doesn't get to win this moment. And so you step back and you let the spirit take over. Crucifixion has, and resurrection has always been God's pattern. From the very beginning, that has been God's pattern. So I'm going to point us to Hebrews 11. Uh, in Hebrews 11, that's where we call it the roll call of faith, or that's where God lists events in the lives of his faithful ones that he's pointing to to say here is what faith in action looks like he he starts that chapter the writer of hebrews starts that chapter with kind of a thesis statement about faith and then he says and here's what it looks like in real time and if we were to go through every one of those which i promise you i'm not going to but every single one will have the same pattern you will find in that person's life a crucifixion that produces a resurrection. Okay, let's just start with Moses. The writer of Hebrews points us to Moses and points us to a moment in Moses' life when he's 40 years old, when he decides to suffer with his people and, and suffer the indignities with his people rather than enjoying the fruits of sin for a season. So that places Moses at his peak moment in his life when he's 40 years old. He's 40 years old in the nation of Egypt. We, we hear a lot, we've, we learn a lot about Moses from even extra-biblical historians of the time. And so when we put everything the scripture tells us and everything we learn from, from other historians, we see this, this portrait of Moses who is handsome and tall and strong and successful at everything he does and, and uh, the pick of the Pharaoh to be, his, to be his successor and the most admired man in Egypt. And when you are the most admired man in Egypt at that time, you are the most admired man in the whole wide world. It is not exaggerating to say that Moses at his peak was the most admired man in the world. And, uh, and he, um, 
God had put into Moses, it's part of his DNA, part of his blueprint, to be impassioned about rescuing his people. And so at the peak of his power, here's how Stephen describes him in the book of Acts. He says, Moses was mighty both in speech and action. Now keep that in mind, both in speech and action. And Stephen says, he presumed that his kindred would recognize that he had been sent to rescue them, but they did not. Okay, so here's Moses. Here's what that a picture that paints of Moses. Moses is at the peak of his power. He is a very cool guy. He, uh, and he thinks of himself like this. God has chosen me to rescue Israel, and what a good choice he has made. There would be no one better. Anyone looking at me could tell just by looking. I'm the man. And uh, so that's Moses. And you remember how the story goes. He, he kills an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating an Israelite slave. Now I just want to make this a side thought. That he, he kills that Egyptian taskmaster with his bare hands. That Egyptian taskmaster did not get his job for his delicacy. He was a brute. And Moses killed him with his bare hands. And he thought, according to Stephen, he thought, now I'll do that and then everybody will recognize. But they didn't. And so Moses heads off into the desert for what we know to be 40 years. He didn't know 40 years. He thought forever. Now, here's what Moses accomplished when in his flesh he attempted to accomplish God's call on his life. He rescued one slave from one taskmaster for one day. Just a very watered-down version of what God has in mind. And so off goes Moses, who thinks that he has, who thinks he's just blown it and, and this is the rest of his life. And he spends 40 years as a shepherd in the desert, the lowest rung on the social, uh, on the social ladder. So he goes from here to here. And 40 years later, God comes to Moses. And God calls Moses by name and he says, Moses, I'm sending you to rescue my people. Moses, who 40 years before had said, I'm the man, this time said, who am I that I should go? God has done 40 years of crucifixion work in Moses. He has taken Moses out of Moses. He has taken Moses' strength and made it weakness so he could take his weakness and make it strength. Remember that, uh, that Stephen had said of Moses in his prime, he's mighty both in speech and action, and now this Moses says, I can't even talk. There's a, when deep, difficult crucifixions are going on in our lives, sometimes it might feel like the very thing you made me strong in you are now making me weak in. But that's just so God can be strong. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. And so we see Moses, who now goes back in and accomplishes everything he always knew deep in his DNA that he was born to do, but he doesn't do it in the power of Moses. He does it in the power of God. Crucifixion becomes resurrection. So let's continue, let's go on and look at Moses' mother, whose name we think is Jochebed. And uh, Jochebed is a slave in Egypt at the worst time to be a slave in Egypt. 
because she's a slave in the last generation of slavery. And every generation has gotten harder and harder. Make bricks, make bricks without straw, throw the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River. Worst time to be a slave in Egypt. And she's expecting a baby at the worst time to be expecting a baby. When the Pharaoh has issued an edict, it is the law of the land, that anyone who sees a newborn Hebrew baby boy is required to throw him into the Nile River. So there are times in, the, in our lives when God is doing crucifixion work, and as, as those events and circumstances begin to swirl around us, we say, this is the worst time for that to happen. We say, at a, at a different time in my life, this, I, could, I could handle this, but this is the worst time. But here's what God says. Your worst time, that's my best time. And so, here's, uh, and so here's Jochebed expecting a baby. And I think as she goes through her pregnancy, she probably comforts herself saying, it, maybe it's a girl. Maybe everything will be okay and it's a girl. But she goes into labor and the midwives arrive. The, the labor pains continue. And I think she probably read the news in the midwife's face as the midwife handed her her newborn baby and pronounced its death sentence. It's a boy. Now, Jochebed was not the first Hebrew mother to try to hide her Hebrew baby boy. Don't you think every Hebrew mother who gave birth to a baby boy tried to find a way to hide him? But God gave Jochebed, uh, gave Jochebed a vision to build a little ark. Now, there's a funny sentence. This, again, this is in Stephen talking in Acts. And he says, she saw that he was no ordinary child. And I say to myself, have you ever met a mother who said, hey, I have had an ordinary child? <laughs> but it tells us that there, there's something in the spiritual realm that caused her to see what God saw. And, and so God gave her this vision to build a little ark. And uh, the day came, I don't know what what it was that made her say to herself, that's as long as I can hide him, but the day came when she took her three-month-old baby boy and entombed him in a basket. And she put that basket probably on her hip. Uh, she didn't want anybody to know what's in it, so probably it was covered. And she begins this walk from her doorstep to the edge of the Nile River. The Nile River where his enemy has said this will be his end. But there's something in Jochebed that said, no, this will be his beginning. The, the, his enemy had proclaimed this will be his tomb, but somehow Jochebed knew inside herself, no, this will be his resurrection. And so she walks that walk. Every step of the way, dying to the flesh that wants to hold and fix and manage and be in charge and not let anything bad happen and make the outcome what she wants, dying to that flesh. And she gets to the edge of the Nile River and in my imagination, she's going to hold onto that basket as long as she can. So she maybe wades into the Nile until it's, oh, let's say up to her hips, and then she does the hardest thing she will ever be called on to do. She takes her hands off. Flesh does not let go easily. It is a deep crucifixion when what the word from the Spirit is, take your hands off. But when she does that, that basket 
follows the course it has been destined to follow from the beginning of time. And you remember how the story goes, that the Pharaoh's daughter uh, finds, finds the baby. He, she says to, to Moses' sister, who's lurking around, find me a Hebrew nursemaid. That was a common practice among the Egyptian women because so many lactating mothers had had their babies ripped from their arms. Find me a, find me a nursemaid among the Hebrews. And so when, after, she, after she experienced the crucifixion, she holds her baby in her arms again. Crucifixion, resurrection, but here's the difference. When she put him into the Nile, he was a slave. But when she received him back from the Nile, he was a prince, all in the letting go. Where the, where, that is, where, the, where the spirit of God's call to your flesh is let go, take your hands off, stand back, let me take it from here. That's one of the hardest calls. But without the letting go, the slave does not become a prince. Last one. Let's look at the story of Abraham. And the, the writer of Hebrews points us to Abraham and he says, and he points us to that story, that pivotal story, when uh, God called on Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Abraham, when God tested him. Now, when God tests, he's really just proving. He, he doesn't test like we test. Like if I test you, it's so I can find out what's in you. When God tests you, what the scripture calls test, when God tests you, so you can find out how powerful God is in you. So this writer says, uh, so Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to offer his one and only son, even though it had been said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and indeed, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now, when you receive someone back from death, what's that called? It's called a resurrection. All right, so let's just, let's just drill down in that verse. It says, uh, the story says, uh, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And it uses a tense of the verb that means a completed action. If you read it in the Amplified Version, it will say, Abraham completed the offering of Isaac. So I read that and then I go, wait, I have known that story all my life and he did not complete the offering of Isaac because you stopped him at the last minute. And yet the scripture says Abraham completed the offering. So then I begin to ask myself, well, when did he complete the offering? Go back to the story as it's told in real time in the 17th chapter of Genesis, I believe, but in Genesis. And, uh, and, and it goes like this. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on a mountain, I'll show you. And the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Now, here's what I know. When, between those last two sentences, that's a condensed version of the story. Between God saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on a mountain, I'll show you. And Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. There's a long, dark night. If we could, if we could listen in on that night, perhaps we would hear Abraham say something like, if you would, let this cup pass from me. But as dawn breaks we would hear him just as clearly say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
and you begin to get the hint. This is not about Isaac's crucifixion. This is about Abraham's crucifixion. And, and so I believe that Abraham offered Isaac on the long, dark night. And here's why I think that's definitely the case. Because here's how the story goes. And Abraham, the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. And on the third day, on the third day, God said, here's the mountain. And up goes Abraham and Isaac. And they get to the top of the mountain. And the angel stops his arm, perhaps in its downward arc. And the writer of Hebrews describes that as a crucifixion. As a, I'm sorry, as a resurrection. So if the resurrection happened on the third day, the crucifixion happened on the long, dark night. That's the night that God got what he wanted from Abraham. Abraham is connected to Isaac in two ways. Isaac is the son of his flesh, your son, your only son whom you love. But he's also the son of promise. Even though, it's through, uh, even though it had been promised to him that it's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham died to his flesh connection that wants to own and keep and be in charge and manipulate and make everything come out right. He died to that flesh, but he never died to the promise. As he went up to the top of the mountain with every intention of offering, uh, offering Isaac as a sacrifice, he said to his servants, we're going to go up and worship and we will be back. Because Hebrews says he reasoned God could raise the dead. So when God is calling you to one of those deep and bloody and painful crucifixions, he, he is not telling you to die to his promise. He's telling you to hold on to the third day, but the only way to get to the resurrection is to walk the crucifixion. I think about uh, the he, uh, Hebrew scholars were in the Hebrew Jewish people will call, refer to that incident as the Akeda or the Akeda Yitzhak, which means the binding, or the binding of Isaac. So I think that's interesting that that's the portion of the story that they identify it by, and I think about the binding. And I think about how, how intimate the binding was. Now he's, now he's right up there face to face. Now their hands are touching. Now there's no more cryptic answers. You'll understand it later. Now he is binding his son to the altar. And I think, now what held him to the task? Why, at that moment, why didn't he just throw up his hands and say, this is too much to ask of me? And I think it is because Abraham had learned in his own walk what it means to, that, that resurrection only comes from crucifixion. He'd already been at several altars. So I think it works like this. Faith bound Abraham when Abraham bound Isaac. The only way to get to the crucifixion that God has in mind for you is to walk out, to, to, I'm sorry, to get to the resurrection is to walk out the crucifixion. And sometimes it's just irritating, and sometimes it's deeply painful. There are moments in your life where God is saying, you are going to have to let me take this from here. You can't fix it. Take your hands off, let it go, put it on the altar. So as we come to just a conclusion this evening, I want us to take the time to just listen to the Holy Spirit and process what the Spirit is, 
is saying to us. So we're, I love this song, Jesus, Take Me Over. Just let this be our background as you just be present to the Holy Spirit and him speak to you in detail about what he's been talking to you about. <laughs> 